And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, August 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the story behind recent releases of Americans held in foreign countries. Plus, how contractors can make sure they say what they mean when using artificial intelligence to write proposals. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, just over a month into the job, the Army's new chief information officer, Leo Garciga, says the Army's rapid adoption of new technology in the last couple of years outran the policies needed to support new programs. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke to Garciga about his priorities, and she joins me now. And so what is Garciga planning to work on now that he's CIO? I imagine it has to do with policies to support technology. Well, yes, policies to support technology, Tom. Uh, There's been a a lot of new things going on in the Army. There's been a huge growth of of software programs, not only in the Army, but military-wide. Then the use of data storage has been another big story in technology and data platforms and cybersecurity. So with all of those things going on, Garcia, who's pretty recently taken his new job, is saying, wait a second, we need to take a breath, pause, and create some policy for how we regulate all of these different new technologies and and how they're organized. Here's Army Chief Information Officer Leo Garcia. We've done these massive sprints. We've moved forward. Now we have to kind of codify and institutionalize that. I think the first piece that I'm really, really focused on right now is what are those critical enablers on the policy side to actually start to institutionalize some things, right? And some things out there, like lots of great work that's happened at AFC and a, and a, a lot of the programs out there have really started doing DSO for real, right, and started getting some of these capabilities, but we still haven't put guidance out, right? So we're going to focus around some things that are that are huge leaps, both from a security perspective. And I guess he's talking about uh, the Futures Command. Army Futures Command has done some great work there. And so how does he plan to actually organize all of this new data and software? He's looking at it in two different phases. He thinks there needs to be some large, overreaching roadmaps that control all of these things. But he also feels like something needs to be done pretty quickly. So right now, what he's doing is looking at interim policies that he can put out there for specific programs and kind of get some organization and some some regulations for it and then move forward with broader policy in the future. As you see, a really big focus on policy, and there's a reason for that. One, it's actually my job. Two, it's a space where we've kind of waited to do it and focused mostly on, hey, we're going to change these longstanding huge policies that are out there in the Army and some guidance, but we're not moving as fast as everybody else is right now. Right, The programs are moving too fast. Capabilities out in private industry are moving too fast. So we have to adjust the way we do this. So well, let's uh, start doing what we need to do right, and rewrite it. So you can see a lot of interim guidance coming out in that space. Well, he's right that his job is policy. He's not really there to crawl on the floor and pull wires through infrastructure and put Cat5 connectors on. Did he name any specific policies, Alex? Yes, he did. He had a couple different things that were the top of his priority list, things he wants to get on right away. One of them is container policy. Uh, The use of containers has really grown in popularity as a method of efficiently packaging and deploying software. But with that agility comes some new security risks. I guess scans can't always see what's inside the containers. So that's one area he's looking to get to right away. 
The other thing he's looking at is improving the user experience when it comes to zero trust implementation plan. That's sort of been a problem because it bogs down the system. And then there's, an, there's data platforms. He has some concerns about public data on government data platforms. We are going to be putting out some interesting guidance on uh, use of government data on public and commercial platforms. Um, I will not name any of them because I'm sure that the folks in legal will not like that. But there are platforms out there that are being used to do some analytical work, and we need to remind folks that some rules around this, right? And we need to protect DOD data, and we need to protect uh, personal information, too. And what does he say about future software acquisition? Because that's central to almost everything they do. Right. So, again, he's looking at those data platforms and expanding that capability in the Army. And he said that expect next year, say, second quarter 2024, we'll be seeing two requests for proposals coming out of his office, and they'll be looking out, as I said, to, to build out data platforms, and they'll be looking at multi-vendor possibilities for that contract. You know, part of this is really reshaping and being able to explain to tenants and customers coming in, and if you're a PM inside your RFPs, what it's going to look like to come into cloud in a secure environment. Um, so really going to focus on getting some of that out sooner rather than later, one to inform the acquisition cycle. And I think the other one to get some standardization across the board so we can see ourselves a little bit better. And by the way, where was he making all of these statements? This was at an AFSIA TechNet conference in Augusta, Georgia last week. Augusta, Georgia. Interesting. I guess maybe they had a little golf at the end. Who knows? But what else came up at that conference? I'm curious about the tech net down in Augusta. I'm sure they had golf involved, but it was so hot last week. I don't know how much of that they did. Another thing that a lot of the speakers talked about was this idea of securing the software supply chain and that as we innovate and bring in new new vendors for different software products that we really need to protect that security and that protecting that security doesn't necessarily mean that the user experience is going to be a terrible one right this idea of zero trust and they want to get rid of passwords and the rest of it so a lot of work there to be done, not just by the Army, but pretty much across the board in federal agencies. That's right. And looking at where the software came, who developed it, and what's involved that can cause security risks. All right. That's everybody's concern. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how contractors can make sure they say what they mean when using artificial intelligence to write proposals. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It takes a lot of thought to buy artificial intelligence. Contractors trying to sell the stuff need to put some careful thinking into their proposals and not rush through them. Then there's an even bigger question for contractors, using AI to draft the proposal itself. Anything could happen. We get some tips from attorney Craig Smith, a partner at Wiley Rhine. Mr. Smith, good to have you with us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Is that something that clients are asking you about these days? Do contractors want to apply artificial intelligence to, I guess, generative AI to the writing of proposals? I think it's on everyone's mind, whether I talk to clients or I talk to peers in industry it's something that feels maybe a little inevitable that at some point this is going to be an unremarkable activity, no different from sending a proposal by email. But maybe the analogy to think about is it's like self-driving cars. It can feel like something that's coming, and it's felt like something that's coming for a while. 
But right now, with where we are with the metaphorical rules of the road, you don't want the car that's driving itself into wet cement. Sure. And just on the legalistic side of this, before we get into the bigger question, you know, federal contracts can have hundreds of clauses. Sometimes not every clause is applicable, and their contract writing systems will maybe, if they're smart enough, leave those clauses out. But then there are clauses that, what do they say, operate in law, even if it's not specifically included in a particular transaction. Could that be a tripping point for AI? Oh, it wasn't in there, but it operates in law, therefore you're in trouble. It's probably an area where you could see an AI tool being developed to check for those types of clauses that are missing. And I think there are some technical aspects that really sophisticated AI companies are going to figure out because federal procurement, while not it's not runic text, there are unique aspects of Comes it. Comes close. It feels like it at times. But it makes writing a proposal for a federal agency different from writing a commercial proposal or even a comparable agency in another country or a state. Those are technical aspects that with time and enough work, I think, can get solved. But there are other risks out there, Tom, that I think we're still just seeing a lot of uncertainty around and are going to take some time to sort out. What do you see as the top risks? I mean, in my mind, something that could get you in False Claims Act territory would be one of them. That's exactly right. So imagine a term that's been around probably for for decades, you probably know it well, is vaporware. The idea of writing a proposal about something that doesn't exist yet. And you could see a generative AI tool writing a proposal for a new widget or a new service that you have no intention of ever offering. The way to guard against that, of course, is the touchstone, I think, of using any AI tool for writing any content for a company, which is having humans involved in the process and reviewing to make sure. Are we offering these widgets? Are these our indirect rates? Is this responsive to what we actually want to offer the agency for this particular opportunity? Because there's also the problem or the challenge for these generative tools anyway, is that they decay over time. That is to say, they multiply the error that they introduced, and it's like multiplying fractions. Each time you run it through again, it gets a little further off course to the point where some of them can't add 2 plus 2 anymore after they've been run through a 1,000 cycles. That's an area where I think it's interesting what goes into the black box. Sometimes we don't know all of it for an AI generative tool. And then how the black box works, we don't always know. And as a lawyer, those are the uncertainty is something that is what keeps me up at night. And so I think, you know, the more proprietary a tool is, the less I know about it, the less interested I am in in necessarily shouldering that kind of risk. So I think you're exactly right. If I don't know how the tool is working, then I feel less comfortable. But if I have to spend more and more time understanding how the tool works and maintaining it, it's also as a practical matter, unclear how much additional value I'm getting out of it. Right. So the last thing that a bidder should do then is take the solicitation, throw it into the chat GPT, and then mail off to the agency what came out. That is absolutely right for a host of reasons. And you can imagine, I mean, we've all heard about the lawyer who submitted the brief with made-up cases. You can imagine that any tool that's out there that's open source or generally available or even at a modest fee, any of those tools might propose things that uh, violate one of the the basic edicts you learn as a capturer or a lawyer. You got to respond to what the solicitation asks for, not for what you think the agency necessarily needs in the, in the best case. There are any number of reasons for for just saying don't don't send it in, pull it back out, and ship it off. 
We're speaking with Craig Smith. He's a partner at the law firm Wiley Rhine, and you have compiled another list of recommendations. What are some of the other things companies thinking of using AI should keep in mind when writing solicitations or bids, I should I, there, say? Yeah, there are a number of questions that when I huddle with our colleagues who are in, we have something of an informal AI working group, we think about how does the tool actually work? So one question is, what goes into it? Probably open source items, items available on the web. That's understandable. But are we getting proposals that are just from our company, which may not be enough to help tune a model to writing proposals for pick your agency? Or is it getting proposals that maybe are collected through Freedom of Information Act requests, which are publicly available in a sense, but maybe a couple of years behind where you need them to be? Or they're getting you know, proposals maybe from other companies that are using the tool, depending on the terms of service, that you know, maybe that's a permissible thing for the AI company to do, in which case I'd start to wonder, do I, in a very indirect way, have access to a competitor's sensitive information in a way that might create some risk under something like the Procurement Integrity Act? So that's that's one question we talk about. I think another is the flip side of that. What's the company doing with the information I submit? So is the tool using servers located only in the United States? That would be important to me if I had to submit any export controlled information that you know might be part of the proposal process. Another question is, will my proposal be folded into the model for tuning that you mentioned, Tom, or for other purposes? Will my contents, maybe my secret sauce, start showing up in proposals generated for my direct competitors? So those are the sorts of questions we talk about internally that we would encourage any company considering a generative AI tool to really think closely about. Yeah, you answered a question I was going to ask. Is there a possibility of some kind of a community generative AI that is just focused on federal contracting for the contractor community to use? But if something from Lockheed is going to infect something that Northrop is trying to say, or whatever the case might be, then probably there wouldn't be too much uptake of it. I think that's the challenge that any company that is interested in offering an AI tool they face is how do we how do we merit, get enough proposals to where the tool is useful, but not in a way that any particular contractor feels uncomfortable about what we're doing with it. And then there's another component to this is just having proposals only tells you how proposals get written. It doesn't tell you which ones are good. And so the other question is, what are the evaluations of these proposals? Sometimes you could get that from public information like Government Accountability Office bid protest decisions will often have the ratings included, but that may be only a portion of it. And that's only a fraction of a fraction of federal procurements. So how that we're going to have access to that and then also making sure there's access to the solicitation. What's the proposal responding to? Many are available publicly on the system for award management, but many are not available on publicly available tools that I can just find through an Internet search. So maybe the real question is, if you're trying to save time here, and time is money for a law firm or for a contractor, is can the chat GPT, for lack of a better word, the generative AI, make this proposal for me? And then I have to spend a lot of time reading it and vetting it with the human brain and the people that really know what they're doing. Will that process be shorter than simply writing it from scratch? Maybe that's the essential question. I think that's part of the question. And then the other part of the question is, what risks do I take on on top of the kind of costs going one way or the other? And I want to make sure listeners understand, 
The answer for me is not no, we're never going to do this. I could see a world where using AI to generate parts of proposals could be as common as an agency using AI to help with parts of their evaluation. What I think is, think of it as more a tool, no different from using a macro in, in a spreadsheet software or a formatting function in a word processing software. You wouldn't just hit the button and, and then just never look at it afterwards. There would still be human review and you'd have carefully vetted the software before you use it. Craig Smith is a partner at the law firm Wiley Ryan. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to those tips at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a close look at whether certain mutual funds available through the TSP are even worth it. But first, the story behind recent releases of Americans held in foreign countries. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Two young State Department foreign affairs officers get credit for help securing recent releases of Americans held in foreign countries. In fact, they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Fletcher Schoened developed the negotiation strategy for basketball player Brittany Greiner, among others, held in Russia. And he joins me now. Mr. Schoen, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And Jennifer Harkins was instrumental in the 2022 release of nine Americans held by Venezuela. She also joins me now. Ms. Harkins, good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Since that case seems to be not quite as in the news or famous right now, Ms. Harkins, we'll start with you. Tell us the background of this case and how you got to the point where they were released from Venezuela. I mean, it's not even one case. I'd call it more like five different cases. There was the case of the Sicko Six. They had been detained in Venezuela since 2017. They were released in two separate kind of batches. One was released in March of 2022 with another individual, and the other five were released on October 1st of last year. And then we also had Jorge Fernandez, who was crossing the border and was picked up by Venezuela in 2021. He was released in March of 2022. And Matthew Heath, who was detained in 2020, he spent two years in Venezuelan prison, and he was released on October 1st. And then we also had Osman Khan, who was a recent college graduate who was living in Colombia, who was also picked up as he was crossing the border into Venezuela, and he was released on October 1st of last year. And so it was kind of all separate cases in a lot of ways, except for the Sitco 6. We ended up getting two people out in March of last year, and we had seven released in October, which was the largest release of American prisoners since sure. 1979. What did you do to help facilitate all this? How would you describe your role in it? Sure, yes. My main role here is to kind of formulate the strategy in working with and negotiating with the foreign government in order to secure the release. I also am the main point of contact for the families here in the U.S., continuously giving them updates we also, you know, do a lot of congressional engagement, congressional briefings to make sure they're up to speed. We're kind of the main focal point for these cases, trying to pull together the entire U.S. government team, which includes, you know, the National Security Council, includes Congress, includes others within the State Department, and just largely across the government. I'm kind of in charge of pulling all of that together so that we can all be kind of rowing in the same direction in order to get these guys out. 
Interesting. So that contact with the family is part of the back end of the whole thing because uh, they're the ultimate stakeholders, I guess. And Fletcher Schoen, you were instrumental in the Brittany Griner case, getting her out of Russia in a prisoner swap. Tell us what you did and a little bit of the background that may not be so well known that happened behind the scenes. Much like Jen, on the the day-to-day, my my job is contact with the families and and sort of quarterbacking the effort back here in D.C. to coordinate what our strategy is going to be to bring someone like Brittany Griner home from Russia. Ultimately, she was freed in a prisoner exchange, but there is an enormous amount of work that goes on behind the scenes because that's a decision that the president of the United States needs to make using his powers of commutation. So, you know, our, our strategy depends on, you know, is it the right time to go forward with that offer? Is it the last option? Have we tried other things? Have we done it in creative ways through different channels and ways the Russians may not have expected? Um, And very much so in Brittany Griner's case, the delicacy of approaching it so as to not increase her value in a way that made it impossible to get her back while also demonstrating our resolve to bring someone like her back from Russia. It was a very interesting uh, case to approach. was put on that two days after coming back from the Middle East with Trevor Reed in another exchange. And so there wasn't really a day off between the two. And currently working on getting Paul Whelan and uh, Evan Gershkovich out of Russia. All those cases also play against each other in terms of how we have to balance Russian asks for all of those things. That's another interesting aspect of the strategy. I know Jen had to deal with that as well in Venezuela. Yeah. And I wanted to ask a side question, too, of you both, because both of these countries, both of their leaders, both of their activities invoke a lot of emotional reaction, a lot of heated political rhetoric and so forth. I imagine one of the difficult things is just to keep your own emotions out of it. I mean, every time I hear Sergei Laprov talk, I'd like to throttle him by the neck. I could never work for the State Department. So how do you keep your equanimity when you are dealing with an emotional situation and maybe an angering situation, but you got to keep your mind on the business at hand? What do you draw on to do that, Fletcher? I think for me personally, I draw a lot on my time in the military, the training I received there. And I think it helps me keep a lot of perspective. You know, uh, this, this is diplomacy. It's, it's not war. And so I think... I rely on, on, on that perspective to, to remind myself every day that someone in this enterprise on the U.S. side has to be professional. I think everybody involved does remain that way because it's for the families to feel the incredible pain and the prisoners themselves of what these, these adversarial regimes are doing. But we can't find a solution to bring people home before their prison terms end unless we keep that professional distance. So we feel this intensely with the families, but we have to be diplomats to get this done. And Jennifer, what's your perspective on that question? I think you just really have to keep your eye on the ball. You have to be really focused on on what it is you're working on and not allow, you know, kind of the emotional aspect get to you, which is a lot easier said than done, especially because we work with the families so closely and they're so largely emotional about the entire situation. You're trying to keep them calm at the same time. And I think just saying really laser focused on, on what the end goal here is, is to bring home our Americans. And what is it like dealing with your counterparts from those nations? Do they bring the same kind of, I guess, resolve without emotion to it, even though their politicians and higher-ups might be trading barbs and rhetoric in the newspapers and so forth? What's it like dealing with the Venezuelan and Russian counterparts, Jen? It's interesting. I mean, you know the background on these people and you know how many bodies they have kind of under their belt. And yet you still have to go into the conversation as if they're kind of your best friend. 
right? As if you're going to, you know, be pals with them and kind of work towards a solution. It's definitely an interesting experience. There's very little animosity, believe it or not. It's very collaborative. It kind of goes back to your last question. You have to really set all of that emotion aside, all of kind of your preconceived notions of these people so that you can connect with them in a way that you're able to come to a solution. Fletcher? I agree with Jen on that. When we're formulating our strategy to get people out of Russia, the key thing we remember is that we care about this issue so much more than they do. In the end, the people on the other side of the line are killers. That's a fact. And they want that to be known. And so we have to formulate how we do this in a way that gets them back home and is advantageous for the United States, knowing that they have all the time in the world. They don't actually care about the people they're bringing back or our Americans who are in prison over there. So that's an interesting part of the job. I'd say, yeah, it's, it's professional, but you have to keep that in the back of the mind at all times. We're speaking with Fletcher Schoen and Jennifer Harkins. They are foreign affairs officers in the Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs at the State Department and finalists in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And just of all of the things you could have done in life, what attracted you to diplomacy in the State Department? Maybe give us a little brief bio. Jennifer? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started in consular affairs, working on cases of American citizens. It's a little bit less specific and less focused on kind of the return of Americans back to the U.S. It's more in providing Americans overseas with support and, you know, making sure that they're kind of being treated fairly and equally overseas. And so, you know, ultimately, the reason I kind of gravitated towards the office I'm in now is that it is much more focused. It's much more surrounded around advocacy and, and actually trying to achieve a goal as opposed to providing resources and, you know, kind of being available to, especially to family members to talk about a situation with their loved one overseas. And so, you know, I think it just comes down to helping people. That's kind of what diplomacy is all about. No matter where you are in the State Department, you're helping people, whether or not it's people from the U.S. that are traveling overseas, or if you're kind of helping more kind of local people and local economies, local political situations. That's kind of, I think, what attracts everybody to diplomacy. I imagine at friends gatherings and family gatherings, you must get a lot of questions because what you've done is pretty impressive, frankly, and outside of most people's experience. Jen? Yeah, it does. Uh, it catches people's eye for sure. You know, a lot of people who don't know what you do at all, you know, you start to explain it to them and it's just like the most fascinating conversation they'll have that week. It is kind of a fun topic at uh, cocktail parties and things like that. And Fletcher, you mentioned military service. Tell us about your background and how you got to this place at the State Department. Sure. So I grew up Always intensely interested in international affairs. I had family in the State Department and people in the federal government. So I traveled around the world visiting them at the different posts they were at. And I always wanted to do something like that. So when I found myself in the military after college, I did about six years in Army Special Operations. Towards the end of that, I wanted to do something more cerebral and more on, you know, at the policy level of things as opposed to being down in the mud. So I got to the State Department because that's where you do those kind of things. I was very attracted to this office's mission because it has a very clear end state. You know, diplomacy is, is very amorphous at times. It's about building relationships and keeping your interests out there. But there is such a fine point on the success of what we do here when we bring someone home that it gives a sense of mission complete. I really enjoy that. The flip side is we're failing until we succeed. And so this job can be very difficult. But when we do bring people home, 
I think there's no one more invested in them coming back other than their families and the prisoners themselves. And so it is an incredible sense of success and, and fulfillment. And that's really why two years into this job, I'm still doing it. And you mentioned, too, that the next big challenges for you are the uh, Evan Gershkovitz case and also Paul Whelan. Lord knows what resolution of that is going to look like or when it's going to occur. I wouldn't ask you to predict it. But in your mind, do you visualize them getting off a plane and stepping back onto American soil? Absolutely. And with their families, too, when we speak with them, we talk about what that day is going to look like because you have to hold on to it. And like Jen, I've been involved in these recoveries. I've been out with Ambassador Karstens picking up Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner. And so I know the mechanics of those days. I know what it's like to have someone get on the plane and, and be heading home after uh, basically a nightmare of being used as a political bargaining chip. But, you know, in particular, I've been working with Paul Whelan's family for two years. They're five, almost five years into this ordeal. Evan's parents, I know very well, and he and I are not too far apart in age. And so I, I, I really just can't wait to meet him on what I hope is one of the happiest days in his life. And Jennifer, what's your next big challenge? You know, we still have Americans down in Venezuela, some of which are wrongfully detained, and we're still working towards bringing them home. So there always seems to be more. It really does. You know, the interesting thing about Venezuela compared to Russia is that myself and Ambassador Carsons, we do travel down there every once in a while mainly to speak to the other side um, and try to work towards releases, but also to get down there to see the Americans who are detained. And so it's kind of a little different than what Fletcher's thinking of, where he's, you know, eager to to kind of meet Evan and, and Paul. I've already met all the guys we're working towards securing their release. I've, I've met them multiple times. And so kind of having that personal contact with them and being invested in their cases, you know, kind of adds something extra to the cake here when, when we finally get them home. Jennifer Harkins and Fletcher Schoen are foreign affairs officers in the Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs at the State Department and finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. And Fletcher, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a close look at whether certain mutual funds available through the TSP are worth it. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The so-called mutual fund window, it's a virtual window, at the thrift savings plan could disappear if a congressional policy becomes law. A House Judicial Committee would bar funds relying on corporate environment, social or governance sensitivities, ESG. Certified financial planner Arthur Stein joins me now with what he's discovered about ESG funds. And golly, nothing seems to be going right for this whole gambit, though, does it, Art? I feel like the uh, TSP, when I think about it, it's like no good deed goes unpunished. Here they, you know, they've had complaints throughout the years that they didn't have enough choices, and they are very few, the, the number of choices in terms of investment sectors. And so they put in this mutual fund window, uh, which contains, for people who use it, there are about 4,600 funds in it. And um, every type of investment you can make with a mutual fund is pretty much included. And so it's great in that sense, but very few people have used it. I mean, like 
very few. Well, let me ask you this on the few people using it. I mean, people invest in their TSP. There's a check off from their paycheck. So the mutual fund window, how does it operate? That is to say, can you have some of your weekly deduction or your your every other week deduction from your paycheck go to one of those? Because those aren't strictly LG funds, et cetera, of the TSP. It's not super easy to use. I mean, the money that goes in the mutual fund window has to come from one of the traditional TSP funds. And then it can go in the mutual fund window. There are various restrictions on how much you can put in minimums and things. And once the money is in there, it goes into a money market fund, and then you can invest in all these other funds. Problem, one problem is that the fees for the mutual fund window are high. There's, there's no question about it. And These are the fees it, charged by the thrift savings plan? In some cases, yes. There are two uh, annual fees of $105.00. Then there's a, a trading fee of twenty eight seventy five. I don't know that I doubt that goes to the TSP in any form. You know, whoever's running this for the TSP probably keeps that money. But in by today's standards, that's a pretty high trading fee. It sure is, yeah. And then the mutual funds have their expense fees, um, which as far as I can tell, maybe a little above average for mutual funds, but are certainly going to be higher than the funds that are currently in the TSP. Well, let me ask you this. If a federal employee wanted to invest in mutual funds and somehow have it as pre-tax dollars, because the TSP is the equivalent of an IRA for everybody else, is there a way that they could lessen what they put in the official TSP accounts and then just spend their own money on a mutual fund, and that could be an IRA for them, and they would still have the same tax structure? No. I would say no. That if you want to buy mutual funds with your TSP money, this is the only way to do it. it. Okay. If you want to transfer, if you're over 59 and a half, you can transfer money out of the TSP into an IRA, and then you'd have more than 4,600 or 5,000 funds to invest in lower trading fees. And so that's something that people can always do. I mean, you can always invest not in an IRA or pre-tax or, fashion or, or just you because could you're just an investor. invest, as you say, in a regular brokerage account, individual account, which is taxable. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Because what I'm getting at is maybe the whole TSP's window for mutual funds was maybe not something that needed to exist in the first place, given the take-up of it and given the kind of complicated, convoluted costs and procedures to take advantage of it. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, from the investor's point of view, especially if they're over 59 and a half and can transfer the money out, they can easily, you know, set up an IRA and then do whatever they want. From the TSP's point of view, they're trying to do what their customers want, their customers being TSP participants, and they did, but they had to do it in a certain way with certain expenses because they wanted to make sure that the cost of the mutual fund window was only paid for with money from the people who were using the mutual fund window. And that's one of the reasons you have $105 in an, $150 in annual fees. And so, you know, that was inevitable. 
then they get into this other thing, uh, which is that, of course, some of these funds invest in what are called ESG investments, environmental, social, and governance. And that these are mutual funds where they're uh, going to services that rate companies according to how well they do on an ESG store, ESG score, and then they invest in those only. And I counted, uh, there are 37 funds that have ESG in their name. Anyway, in Congress, uh, in you know, it's become a political issue. A lot of Republicans don't like ESG investments. Okay, so there is a bill in Congress that would forbid the TSP from having any ESG funds in any part of it, and apparently that includes the mutual fund window. And I think TSP feels like if that passes, they're going to have to cancel the whole thing because they cannot regulate these 4,600 funds, and I agree with them because funds have a wide latitude in what they invest in and they change and it's just probably not possible for them to do. And Tom, you may remember that a couple of years ago, I think it was, they were going to change the index for the I fund in the TSP, the international stock index fund, which they need to do. I mean, that would have been a good thing, but members of Congress found out that the fund they were considering, which they had decided to use, actually included investments in Chinese companies and protested, sure. and that whole thing ended. Well, there are 18 funds in this mutual fund window that have China in their name. They're specifically investing in China. So that could be an issue, too. Well, there's an interesting question here, though. The members of Congress that were trying to put an end to the ESG funds within the mutual fund window, again, if that is even possible, kept talking about taxpayer dollars invested in ESG or woke funds. You may or may not want to invest in this type of fund. You know, personally, I would do guns, alcohol, and gasoline or something, but whatever. Motorcycles. <laughs> Motorcycles, <I know>. <laughs> right. <laughs> if it burns, it turns. But the question is, that's not really taxpayer dollars at all. What no. This is a voluntary program. The only money going into these funds is going to be the funds of TSP participants. So it's got nothing to do with the government. And because it's been set up so that the mutual fund window is self-supporting, there's not going to be any cost to the TSP to run this and set it up. There's no government money involved. Yeah, so I don't understand that because once you pay your federal employees, folks, it's not taxpayer dollars anymore. It's those people that earned it working for the government. I mean, that yeah, seems so basic. And making decisions on their own. That's right. And, you know, the TSP, you know, they want to keep as many dollars in the TSP as they can. And so this was one way that they could do that. Well, let me ask you this. The ESG type of fund, it's not that new an idea. I think it got started maybe 20, 25 years ago. There were a couple of funds that famously said we're going to be, you know, virtuous in the things that we, by our definition of virtue, of what we invest in. Now there's a lot of them. And are they any good as far as investment vehicles? That is to say, what are their cost ratios? What are their returns? I mean, has anyone studied that? Well, that is subject to considerable debate. And one reason is there is not general agreement on what an ES, what is a company that should be rated as a, you know, ESG worthy company. There are five or six rating services 
and uh, they don't agree on lots of companies. So, and then there are also funds that invest in what they consider good based upon uh, religious values. There used to be a Muslim fund. There may still be. There's certainly a Catholic fund. And uh, I, I don't know what Catholic values are when it comes to investing, but apparently something. So there are those disagreements. Performance, it's harder to say. I don't expect that these funds are going to outperform. And there is reason to think that over long periods of time that they're going to underperform because money is going into them, not be, into certain companies, not because they're a great investment and deserve that, but because they're ESG. Distorts the market. Yeah, look at these, how many electric vehicle startups have raised billions and then gone bankrupt, several of them, you know, or they can't deliver or they delivered a few cars and they're long-term outside of Tesla. Nobody's well, really and, done and it We yet. also ignore the fact that it's subject to the debate how good electric vehicles are for the environment when you take into account all the special minerals that need to go into these, the fact that the batteries only last so long. I've seen articles that say, you know, you have to drive the vehicle for a very long period of time before it becomes overall good for the environment. So you get those disagreements. And it's just a very tough issue. Yes, well-intentioned as investors in ESG are, and maybe they're willing to accept a lower return because their values are being met by their investments, and that's everyone's personal decision, which we can't question. But then there's also the ability of companies calling themselves ESG or passing whatever markers, but there's a million ways to game that. Yeah, called greenwashing. So the whole ESG question, I think it's too bad. I mean, this was a valuable change that the TSP made. It might not be that valuable. I mean, because only so many people are using it, very small number, and I doubt that it'll ever be huge, and it is expensive, and the trading fees especially are high, but the $150 a year is high too. So, but to throw in this ESG controversy for investment money, which Tom, as you say, it's not the government's money. It's, it's the TSP participants' money. I think that's too bad. Certified financial planner Art Stein, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Congress gave the IRS a big fat funding boost, partly to add staff over the next several years. Now the agency says it has something to show for the money, lots of new hires. The IRS is making these hires under the Inflation Reduction Act, which gave the agency $60 billion over 10 years for modernization. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest here. What kind of staffing does the IRS have now, Jory? Well, the IRS is on the verge of crossing a pretty major threshold here. It's close to reaching 90,000 full-time employees. This is a staffing level the agency hasn't seen in more than a decade. And this is going across all areas here. This is going towards the taxpayer experience side of things. This is going towards enforcement, IT, you name it. This is something that is getting a plus up in employees. We heard recently from IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel commemorating the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is driving all of this hiring. He says that the agency is making pretty good progress on hiring, but this is 
for some context, you know, a level of workforce the IRS had in the past. This is a healthy state for the IRS, and this is just them catching up to that state now. And this is the workforce that Workful says the agency needs to do a 21st century handling of tax administration. We've proved that the question shouldn't be, can the IRS improve? The question should be, can the IRS continue to improve? Um, so, uh, so the momentum is good, but we have to keep it going. Well, the question is, what's the right level? 200,000 people, 300,000, they're getting to 100,000 now. So what level of hiring does the agency say it still needs to make in the next year or so? Well, by the end of 2024, the IRS is looking to hire 20,000 additional IRS employees. That's 10,000 this year, and that's 10,000 next year. And the focus, again, is going to be on taxpayer services and enforcement. Taxpayer services, does that mean the call centers or people to answer the phones or people to help individuals or, I guess, small businesses or large businesses with tax questions? Yeah, it's really all of the above. It's the people manning the call centers. It's the people processing tax returns, things of that nature. And then on the enforcement side, it is ramping up there because, as Warfel pointed out, the IRS currently has about 2,600 staff to handle all of the high-income taxpayers and corporations they deal with, and that's a population of 390,000. And these are people that have hundreds of thousands of pages when it comes to their tax returns. Right. And if you add in the lawyers, it's almost a million people they have to deal with. So <laughs> 2,600 versus a million. Yeah, it doesn't seem too evenly stacked. But they're looking for employees in other areas of IRS too, aren't they? A big focus and this comes up every time the IRS talks about hiring, they're looking to bring in data scientists. The IRS deals with volumes and volumes of data, being able to slice and dice that a little bit more, make smarter decisions when it comes to audits. Also, just getting this top talent from accounting and law firms to, again, go after tax cheats. These are all people the IRS is looking at. Werfel says that they're looking at all spectrums here, people who are just starting their careers, people who are midway through their careers, and people who may be coming out of retirement in some cases. That experience is really key when it comes to some of these niche issues. And the IRS, of course, has ongoing information technology issues and updating some of the older systems that they're still running, redoing software and so forth. In all of these places where Werfel has been talking, did he mention IT employees, or is that something they plan to just simply contract out? It's likely going to be a combination of both. We didn't hear specifically on the IT front what the IRS has really been front of mind with in terms of the first wave of Inflation Reduction Act investments is that taxpayer experience, recognizing that it hasn't been at a level where it needs to be recently. We went from 15% of calls getting answered last year's filing season to 87%. So that's one thing that they really point to as a sign of progress. IT surely is going to be coming down the road in terms of a spotlight on that. And outside of hiring people, what else does Werfel say the IRS plans to do with all this inflation reduction money coming? Again, a theme here, more improvements towards the taxpayer experience. The IRS next year's filing season is going to roll out a callback option for 95% of callers who are trying to seek live assistance. This doesn't seem like a big deal if you're trying to reach your bank or some other private financial institution, but this is a big deal for the IRS. This is something they've been talking years about, and it's finally here. The IRS in the coming years is also going to fully digitize all the tax returns it receives. That's going to cut weeks down in terms of processing of especially paper-based tax returns, but they say this is going to improve all tax returns in terms of that processing. The agency also just needs this money to stay on top of a new wave of tax scams. 
Werfel said that artificial intelligence is kicking a lot of these scams into overdrive, and so they need to stay on top of that. History will not judge our success based on the last 12 months. It will judge us on how we do in the next 12 months and beyond. As our strategic operating plan outlines, we need to do much, much more. Having this funding means we can build the capabilities and the solutions to help taxpayers now and in the future with the staffing and the tools and the technology appropriate for today, not 2010 or previous decade. And the IRS does not lack for people watching over sight of it. It's got TIGTA. It has the GAO. What are these so-called watchdogs saying about the IRS especially the hiring efforts. We recently heard from TIGDA about this. They took a look at the IRS and its ability to use pay incentives to bring in-demand people, mission-critical people on board. Think of those people who are going after those high-income earners. They found that the IRS used these pay incentives and it has a variety of these at its disposal to recruit, retain, or relocate employees. They made these incentive payments out to bring about 1,400 employees on board between fiscal 2019 and 2022. For some context here, the IRS paid about a million and a half dollars through these incentives, and the vast majority of these went to IRS employees to get them back to the office in 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And these are not gigantic payments. We're talking five to $10,000. It's not like you get a year's salary to come back or anything. Right. These are pretty modest in terms of what this means for a, a person's bottom line. But it is a sweetener to get someone who is a IT person or a data person or some emerging tech thing where the IRS is lacking in terms of competing with the private sector. And probably this did not come up, but I imagine the IRS must have a plan for dealing with annuities for people that get rehired say, after they retired, pension annuity at that point, if they go back full time as an employee. I imagine that didn't come up, but I think the IRS is probably thinking about that. The IRS is hiring back former employees who had retired and dealing with these kinds of issues because they are in-demand people with a very particular set of skills. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 